Welcome back to Project Growth. I'm Vin Matano, and today I'm joined by Rena Levine Levy, who is the CEO of the Windmill Restaurants. And for those of you who don't know what the Windmill is, it's an iconic hamburger and hot dog joint at the Jersey Shore. And it's been around since the 60s, and Rena's family has been involved since the 70s. So we talked a lot about her upbringing, um, her long career in the food industry, and also the current trends that she's seeing now when a lot of the challenges that the food industry and hospitality industry are seeing since the pandemic, like shortage in, in workforce, um, rising costs due to inflation, and some trends that are a little bit more difficult to follow uh, being in the fast food industry of hot dogs and hamburgers. So we talk a lot more on this episode, but I'm excited to get into it. Let's get it. All right, welcome back. I'm here with uh, Rena Levine-Levy the CEO of the windmill. And if you guys aren't familiar with the windmill, we're going to have uh, Rena dive into that, but it's a kind of staple at the Jersey shore here. And everyone knows I, I am from Jersey. I went to school at the Jersey shore. So it was a big, big thing for me. Um, we're going to dive into a lot of the different things we're seeing in the, in the food industry and, and kind of Rena's story within it, but Rena, happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very honored to have been invited. Yeah, of course. And for those of, people that maybe don't know or maybe not from New Jersey, what is the windmill? The windmill is New Jersey. We are an iconic restaurant that opened in 1963. The original windmill is in the shape of a building that's in the shape of a windmill, about 880 square feet. Um, It's it's just an icon at the Jersey Shore. Everybody that's in Monmouth County basically knows the original windmill. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I can attest to that. Um, and, and you spent, you know, majority of your life in the food industry. So my question is, like, where did this all begin? Oh, well, it's been a long time ago. But I started working in restaurants when I was fourteen. I was a hostess in a Howard Johnson's restaurant on 49th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. And I worked my way up to eventually becoming a waitress and then went off to college uh, in Ohio. And somehow I always managed to get back into the restaurant business no matter what I did. You could always make more money being in the restaurant business than you could teaching, at least back in the the 70s. So um, I jumped in and out of restaurants basically all my life. I only taught one year. Wow. And I, I think I think working in either the in the food industry or just like the hospitality industry in general is just super important, specifically for like, you know, young kids coming up. I had some experience working in like, you know, whether it was restaurants or uh, wedding halls. And I feel like it just taught me a lot, you know, how to talk to people, um, how to get comfortable with just like, you know, having conversations with complete strangers so what did that do for you when you mentioned early on in your career, you started off, you know, as a waitress at a, at a Howard Johnson? Um, I really have never thought about it quite that way, but it's an interesting angle that you bring because you do have to talk to people as a hostess and you do have to talk to people as a waitress and um, you have to learn how to accept all different kinds of people. You have to accept how to be treated nicely, how to be treated unkindly for sure. So I, I think it does help become, make you more well-rounded, especially if you do it as a teenager. 
I'm not quite sure you get that same kind of interaction at a McDonald's or a Burger King because there's not that much give and take. But if you're waiting on tables, at least back in the uh, 60s and 70s, you were really interacting with people and you had to know how to address them kindly because you were working for tips. So it was a great, it's great that you pointed out. It, it was an interesting lesson. Yeah. And to your point, you know, you, you mentioned like the McDonald's or, or Burger King, that's more of a, like a transactional um, encounter, encounter, whereas where you're saying it was more about like the service, the people uh, making people feel not only the food was good at, at the place they're at, but the service and the atmosphere you're creating as a, as a, as someone working in the industry. Right. And you can make, you could make somebody feel very welcome and you can be paid for it actually, because that's what a tip has become in this country. You're, you're getting paid for the service that you delivered. So you were on the spot to make the most of it every time you served a different table. Uh, There's a very famous uh, speaker in the restaurant industry. His name's Jim Sullivan. And he used to say that a waitress's station was like her real estate. And she was in charge of taking care of her real estate, her investment in the real estate. And you really invested in each table to make the most of it. And if you think that's what it is, you're investing your time, your smiles in a group of people that come in because you're hoping that they're going to tip you nicely. Yeah, I love that. That it's so I work in, in sales and we have something kind of similar to that too. In sales, you're given a territory, right? So the, there's a saying in sales where it's treat, you know, you are the CEO of your territory. So you have this territory and you have to act like you're the CEO of it um, in order to, to make the most, whether that's the most money out of it or just the most relationships out of it. Um, but I really like that point that you brought up. Exactly. Very, yeah. exactly. Cool. So how did, so you, you know, you always worked in either the food industry or the hospitality industry. How did you get to the point of, you know, where did the windmill come into place? I know it was, um, you know, a family business that your family had acquired, but when did that come into the picture? So in 1976, my father bought the business with his brother and I had very little to do with it. Um, I had small children and I was working. uh, We had an interest in Howard Johnson's restaurant across from Newark Airport, my father did. And I really stayed more involved in the Howard Johnson's because it allowed me a lot of flexibility with my children. So I stayed there for years because it just was easy in in all different kinds of capacities. Um, Did a lot of the bookkeeping, not so much waitressing. Once I got married, I sort of left that behind. I was more in a managerial position. We had catering hall. I did a lot of event planning and event executing. Eventually, I tired of working for my family's business, and I went and became a restaurant manager in Lord & Taylor, which many of your listeners are probably too young to remember, but Lord & Taylor was a very upscale department store chain, and they had a lot of restaurants that still had restaurants called the Birdcage. So I went to work for them as a restaurant manager in Paramus, New Jersey. So I was there for years, uh, eventually left there and then went to Stern's department stores as director of food and beverage. And uh, my knowledge base really grew there because I was considered part of the senior management team at a, at a very high level. 
same level as a, a general store manager. Eventually my father said, it's time for you to come to the family business. And uh, that was in 1992, 1993, somewhere back then. And he said, you have a choice, either you get involved in the business or you're not gonna be ever included in the business. So um, I left the department store side and went to the family business. Got it. And at the time when your uh, family first acquired the business, I think it was in like the late seventies, was there just one location at that point or were there other? When my father bought it, it was just the original one in West End. And then two years later, he opened one in Delmar. Mm. And then uh, they started franchising in uh, Bricktown and in Ocean. Um, they were very old school. My father and my uncle were very successful. Neither one of them graduated high school. They were very successful. Farm, I'm riding on my father's coattails because my father and mother bought the business. He wasn't riding on anybody's. He and my uncle built the business, not in this necessarily in a way that allowed them to grow like a Wendy's. They were sort of trapped in their own ideas and independent restaurateurs are very headstrong, um, very egotistical. They think they know the best way to do things. And they sort of got trapped in that. Mm. So they would never bring anybody on. They, not, neither of them were big into collaboration. They oh, liked yes. giving orders and telling people what to do. And many family businesses are run like that. There's a boss, so to speak, in, in, uh, in uh, italics. There's a boss and then everybody listens to the boss, just like you listen to the father. So. I, I actually had a, uh, that kind of transitioned into one of the questions that I had. I would imagine, I'm, I'm not involved obviously in any family businesses, but I would imagine with having a family business that's been around for, for many decades, and there's some kind of tradition behind that because it's not just a business, it's a family business. So there's kind of tradition tied into it. I would imagine, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, it is kind of difficult to incorporate either maybe change or maybe like embrace new ideas because there is so much tradition behind it that maybe some, you know, some people within the, either the family or part of the business may think that, you know, maybe you're kind of changing the tradition or changing the way we used to do things. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, there are a lot of sacred cows in many kinds of businesses, but I do feel that family businesses, as you pointed out, have probably more secret cows than others. Um, if you don't have a culture of collaboration, you're not gonna move forward. It becomes very difficult because everybody, you can't overcome the fact that your father is your father. That's a dynamic. You can't overcome the fact that you're you're, I joined the business after my uncle passed away. That's why my father brought me down. Um, and my brother and I have, are the owners now, my brother and I have a relationship that preceded me being at the windmill. My brother was there before me, but my brother's background is a little bit different than mine. And you bring all that baggage with you. So family businesses, to this day, it's difficult to, to make any kinds of changes. And the fact that we've been around and successful for so many years, you wonder, are you, are you gonna change what makes you successful? What's our point of differentiation? Is the fact that the windmill doesn't have digital menu boards 
Is that something that makes people feel good because it's nostalgic? Or should we have digital menu boards like everybody else? Because everybody else has digital menu boards. Should we get on, you know, if you look at Dunkin' Donuts, for example, Dunkin' Donuts has avocado toast. Now, the windmill is never serving avocado toast. <laughs> right, right. Okay, where's the windmill? Dunkin' Donuts, and I'm not saying that they do it, they do it far better than we do. So I don't want you to misinterpret me, but Dunkin' Donuts follows the trends. The windmill has never followed the trends. When I joined the windmill 20 some odd years ago, I was a vegetarian. And the first thing that I did was bring in a veggie burger. We've had a veggie burger on our menu for close to 30 years. It wasn't a trend. It was, it, it existed, we needed it, and we, I wanted it to be there. Never been a big seller. People come to the windmill for hot dogs, but we've always had a veggie burger. Now, if you look at the trends in this, right now, 2021, everybody has to have a veggie burger. And everybody has to have be plant forward. Right. The windmill is never going to be plant forward, right? And, and that and that and that does say something because you, you think about think about all the like main kind of fast food or quick service restaurants. They all even tend to look alike on the outside. They all have this like square kind of. I don't know if you've noticed all the new construction for like let's say the McDonald's, Taco Bell. They're all they all look the same from the outside. It's just the logos that are different. And to your point, it kind of removes this kind of nostalgic, nostalgic feeling that you would get from, let's say, going to, um, you know, a, uh, a small, you know, burger shop. Right. So that is something to say, because there is something because nostalgic, nostalgia sells as well. Um, so that's like a point you guys are hitting on for sure. Yeah, it's difficult to try and stay current and relevant and true to your roots. That's a challenge. Right. And it only appeals to certain people. If you are not a windmill fan, you might walk into the windmill and be very turned off by what you see there. Because you're, it, there's no nostalgia there for you. You might say, oh my God, these people are stuck in the 1970s, which is true in many ways. And it doesn't appeal to a new customer. But I will tell you, I get more emails and more phone calls from graduates of Monmouth University and people that we're part of, we're part of their DNA. I used to go there with my grandfather. Um, we just did, a, believe it or not, this is a first. We did a repast in Monmouth Beach two weeks ago because her father's favorite food was the windmill and all she wanted to do was serve windmill at his repast. Wow. Because it's a part of it's part of their family fabric going to the window. It's it it's not just eating at a restaurant. I mean, you could do it at another restaurant, but the window has a very special place in a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, and, and just to expand that, what would you what would you say like your guys' competitive advantage is? Well, we do serve the best hot dog in the United States. So that's one. We have outrageous French fries and cheese fries, that's two. And we have a long history of putting our customers first and trying to make everybody feel like they're at home. So I think that fact that the culture, my brother and I and our involvement in the communities, that 
that flows down to the people that work for us. And we're part of the community. We're, we're not just a restaurant. We're the windmill. And in Monmouth County, that has, that says something. Totally. Yeah. And you guys, I mean, you guys even expanded to, I think you guys have about five locations now. And speaking of like being involved in the community, you know, we were talking earlier before we were recording about a mutual connection, Joe Palazzolo. And I actually had a class of his, uh, he is a teacher at Monmouth and he taught a class on corporate social responsibility. So essentially, you know, kind of giving back to the community. So on that topic of, you know, like you said, the windmill being in the community, you know, what are you guys doing to essentially give back to the community? Because I know you guys are involved in that. Um, giving back to the community is in our DNA. Um, Stephen, who's my brother, and as I said, my partner, and I manifest that a little bit differently, but that is a part of our everyday business. I'm uh, on the board of the Fulfill, the food bank in Monmouth and Ocean County. I'm part of the executive committee. I'm constantly involved in what's going on there, trying to feed our neighbors. Um, that's a nonstop. That's been going on for decades and decades. My brother is a local EMT in Mammoth Beach. My brother makes sure that we feed people at Thanksgiving, we feed people at Christmas. Uh, we adopted however many families we adopted out of Long Branch High School for the holidays. Uh, we, we don't stop. It is definitely a part of what we are. We uh, help service the police departments, the fire departments, if there's a need, we're there. That, that's just the way we are. Everybody knows that they can count on the windmill. We support the Holiday Express. But basically, everybody knows that they need something. If they come to me or they come to my brother, that we're going to do our best to deliver. And I don't know exactly what Joe taught you about CSR, but I did my master's at Monmouth with a focus on, on CSR. And there's ne not necessarily a give back. If you ask somebody before they walk in our door, if they know what we do or they don't know what we do, chances are they have no idea that we're good corporate citizens. We don't do it to get something back. We do it because we feel it's something that we have to do. We couldn't exist without being able to help other people. We're too lucky. We've, we have too much to be grateful for, not to share it. I think they call that like greenwashing, right? When you're uh, when you're doing it for the wrong reasons to, to like make profit from it. Yeah, I often wonder about it. And when I when I did do um, my research, I never found that there was a balance. If you like, if you if you're a soda drinker, you can't convince me ever that you drink Pepsi or Coke based upon what they do for the community. Right. You drink it because you like it. And you're not going to stop drinking it because you find out that they don't donate as much money as the other one does. Just not going to happen. You know, so when you say, yes, there are younger people that are very interested in what you're doing and your footprint and how green you are and how this you are and how that you are, bottom line is you're not going any place that you don't like. So if you have two places that you like, maybe you'll choose one because you heard but nobody is advertising on the outside of our door how much money we've donated to fulfill or how many hot dogs we've fed to homeless people 
or, or how many families we adopted this Christmas season. We do that for ourselves right? because it makes us feel good and the community benefits from it. Exactly. Yeah, I, lo- no, I love that. I'll give you one funny scenario, though, because um, sure. I, I agree with you. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you, you know, like you said, if you like uh, Pepsi, you're going to drink Pepsi because you like it. My mom, she loves animals <laughs> and she only buys Dawn because the I swear it's because the commercials are then like cleaning the ducks and stuff like that. <laughs> she was like, oh, they clean the ducks like after the oil spills. And she literally buys Dawn because of that. That's the only scenario I can think of. But otherwise, I completely agree with you. But it, she did make a decision based upon what she heard, but she, you know, not that I'm attacking, but no one knows the bigger picture. Exactly. You know, that's a commercial, but what else are they doing? No, I, I 100% agree. It, it, be, it, become, it becomes crazy. Like, where are your jeans made? You know, where is your sweatshirt made? I don't know if it's made in a sweatshop in wherever, but yeah, you have a very, you have a fabulous commercial that says that you're very green, so that good for you. Right. But in the meantime, you have slave labor making the products in Vietnam. Right. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors there. Right. Um, you really don't. Switching kind of topics here. Obviously, I know within like the, the past you know year and a half or so, the food industry has been kind of going through ups and downs, obviously, with the, with the pandemic and stuff. So you know, what were some of the challenges you guys saw with, with, you know, over the past year and a half and how have you guys kind of um, addressed those or overcome those um, and kind of got, you know, kind of adapted to what's, what's the, what's the world is now? Well, the windmill, as you know, used to be open late nights. We were open till three o'clock in the morning in Belmar and in West End. And since the pandemic, we've been closing at eight o'clock. So we literally gave up about a third of our business when the pandemic stopped, we were very lucky. We were able to do takeout and we deal with DoorDash, Uber and Grubhub. So we were able to do delivering. But did you, did you guys have that uh, prior to the pandemic or was that something? Yes, new? I did. Oh, okay, and got it. I had gotcha. that prior too. Gotcha. Um, but obviously it became a much bigger part of our business. Yeah. Um, it breaks my heart that we're not open late at night. We can't find people to work to keep us open late at night, even in the summer. Mm. Um, you know, it's not very... It may be fun eating at the windmill, but it's not very sexy working at the windmill for some reason. Um, so we have, uh, we've been challenged by the uh, shortage in the, um, on the employee side. Um, during the summers, we used to have an influx of students from Eastern Europe that came in with work visas. Uh, during President Trump's um, term, he, uh, decreased the number of those visas. So we started having troubles way back when. And then once the pandemic hit, nobody was allowed in. Hmm. So if you have just using a, an example, if you have a hundred college kids that are looking for a job at the Jersey shore, you probably have 200 places that are looking to hire them. Hmm. So for us, it was a challenge um, that presents a challenge financially because they become very independent with the amount of money that they're seeking for their hourly wage. And uh, yeah, and I cannot stress enough that every week I get increases on the prices of our food. So uh, wow, it's very sad. Is that just because the supplies are more? Well, 
gas prices are up. So getting the products to us costs more. Mm. There's supply chain issues. I mean, for example, our supplier will order a, a truckload of chicken fingers. And when the truck gets there, there's no chicken fingers on it because they can't find anybody at the plant to process the chicken fingers. Wow. So it, it all becomes layered, becomes very, very layered. It, it, my problem with finding employees is not unique to the windmill. So when <laughs> the plants are closing because they don't have people to work in the plants, then they can't deliver me the products. So in a restaurant, like a fine dining restaurant or even a, a table, a, not necessarily fine dining, but they can change their menu. And when you sit down and you, they say, well, we don't have X, Y, or Z today because we couldn't, we just don't, can't buy it. I can't say that I don't have hot dogs at a hot dog restaurant. Right. So I have to pay whatever the price is. I got a price on my an increase in shortening. I'm paying more than twice as much for shortening now than I was before the pandemic. And shortening is what we fry the fried fruits in and french fries. And customers only have so much bandwidth for spending money, but I'm making substantially less money than I made before the pandemic hit. Mm. And in the state of New Jersey, the minimum wage goes up again January 3rd or 1st. I don't remember which one. So everybody because I have hourly workers, is expecting to get a raise in January. I'm not getting a raise. If anything, as I said, we're making much less. Very grateful for some of the government programs that were able to help us out. But if it wasn't for them, we would have been out of business. Wow. Yeah, that's such a, um, like I said, an iconic part of the Jersey Shore. So that would be a, you know, that would have been a, that would have been a huge thing. Um, there's something also to be said too about like, you know, when you are in your position, like you said, CEO, or, you know, I've had like some founders on here. A lot of the times it comes from the top down where the top, you know, the, the top person is taking the sacrifice to make sure that the, 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 the workers, the people that are kind of on the front lines are, are taken care of, which sounds like is a scenario for you as well. Like you had said, like, you know, you're making sure that your workers are getting taken care of before you, which is great. Well, we have, a core group of people. We don't have nearly as many employees as we used to. Most of the people that are with us, the majority have been with us through the entire pandemic. And we have done everything that we can to show our gratitude for the fact that they're there. Because quite frankly, the way we structured money during the pandemic, it was in, would have been in their interest, best interest to stay home and collect unemployment because they could have collected unemployment at $600 a week to stay home. My employees did not get an extra $600 a week for coming to work. I think it's one of the gravest injustices we have ever, ever perpetrated on the, the, the working people. That if you stayed home, you got 600 a week. If you went to work, you got nothing. So my brother and I were never in a position to give people an extra 600 a week, considering we lost all of our business. But whenever we can, we, we do try and take care of them. But uh, as I said, a grave injustice to punish all those people at ShopRite that were there when we all needed to go to the supermarket so we could keep eating, all the people at the gas stations, all the people at the restaurants that were open. 
those people were just not taken care of fairly. They, they didn't even get tax breaks. I, I don't, and you can't blame it on the Republicans or the Democrats because they both did it. Yeah, it's uh, it is definitely a strange, strange time for sure. I want to go back to the the one we, we touched on a little bit. You had mentioned you were taking some classes for your for your MBA at, at Monmouth. Um, I want to talk about that experience of like going back to school many years later. Um, and for me, you know, I uh, graduated maybe I don't know five, four or five years ago. I couldn't even imagine going back to school. Um, but but you you had this career already, and you decided to go back to school. So one, why did you decide to go back? You know, so much later in life, and two. You know, what did you kind of take from that program? Well, at the time, my mother and father were still alive. I worked with my mother and my father and my brother and my husband, who I did not work with, but his name is Levy. So everybody around me, their last name started with an L, basically. And I was so over it because you just, you're, you get dry. There's no fresh and no new ideas because you've been together. You're a family. You've been together forever. So I decided that I needed to find some fresh ideas. And because I'm in charge of the advertising and the marketing, it was very important that I find out what was going on in the world outside of the windmill where we say, oh, we have the best hot dogs. Just come to us because we're the best, which was the corporate philosophy, basically. Uh, So there was a certificate program offered in Monmouth in the communications department. And I decided I would jump into that and see what it looked like. And before I knew it, I was in a master's program to finish a master's in communication. And I treasure the time that I spent there. It was very challenging. The first time that I went to the library, I asked somebody to help me find a book. And they looked at me and they go, why do you want a book? I said, well, I'm working on a paper. And she said to me, well, let me introduce you. And she introduced me to, uh, to the online learning, to databases. I had no idea that existed. <laughs> when I went to college, you used to do a decimal system and you went and found the book. Uh, use microfish. It was totally different. So it was illuminating. It was an illuminating experience. And I did get to hear what younger people were thinking and talking about and um, very grateful. It was a lot of work, but very grateful that I took the time to do it. That's awesome. And I think the, the last question here I want to ask on a, on a leave off on a fun note. Um, I heard you guys have some good stories about, you know, different, I guess, uh, you know, famous New Jersey people within, within the windmill. I know you, there's probably some about Bruce Springsteen I've heard. So, you know, what is your like favorite story about the windmill and maybe something about some of the, uh, uh, some of the people like <laughs> Bruce Springsteen? Okay. Sure. So at one time, one of my daughters worked for the windmill. So she was not my best employee. Let's put it that way. But uh, my brother, my brother calls me over to his desk and he's looking at a tape from the previous weekend. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to show me what Lindsay was doing wrong at the windmill late at night with a bunch of her friends. That was my thought. So he brings me over and says, look at this tape. And behind the counter is Patty and Bruce Springsteen flipping hot dogs. 
They just came from doing a benefit for, um, I think it was Rumson Country Day where their kids went to school. And they did an annual benefit for them someplace. And they all came over to the windmill and they were playing behind the counter at the windmill. We never published it. We always felt that their privacy was sacrosanct and we kept it. But it is a story that we do enjoy telling. I love that. Because, you know, if you are from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen is like like a God figure. (laughs) So the fact that, you know, they're kind of uh, endorsing the the windmills always just shows how much of an icon it is. Well, Bruce Springsteen once included um, mention of the windmill in one of the programs for one of his concerts. Really? Oh, yes. Bruce Springsteen, there was, a, well, your, most of your guests don't understand the real estate, but the, we're on one corner on Ocean Avenue, and then there was housing on the street across from us, which is now a 7-Eleven and a shopping center. But he lived there for a while in the housing that was right near the windmill in Long Branch. So he used to be a windmill customer often. I mean, now he doesn't eat bread, meat and whatever. You know, he's not there as often as he used to be. But originally, not only Bruce Springsteen, but a lot of people used to take windmill food on the road with them. Just what it was. And it's hard for you to, to picture it, but way back when, the windmill was the only place to go. There weren't all these other alternatives. It was the windmill or nothing down on Ocean Avenue. So we were the only game in town. And to this day, I mean, I have a picture in my phone of Stephen Van Zandt with his dog eating at one of our restaurants on the patio. it's It's part of their growing up. It's part of their lives as much as it's a, a part of many of our other fans. It, it really and truly is. Max Weinberg goes into the Windmill and Red Bank regularly. You can't like you can't knock a great hot dog. If you like great <laughs> hot dogs, you got to go to the Windmill, and our fries are to die for. Yeah, and that's fries, a, amazing. New, New Jersey, New, New Jersey hot dog is a is a staple, so you gotta you gotta check out the Windmill. Well uh rena appreciate the time this was uh really enjoyed chatting with you um we'll get this episode out in a, in a few weeks and um if i leave any if I leave anything with anybody is if you're in new jersey near the shore area stop at the windmill thank you for inviting me happy holidays thank you bye